potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show today, bringing you another fascinating individual who is helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people around the globe. Uh, we have the honor of being joined today by Donato Tremuto, who is a healthcare executive, global health activist, author, and who is widely recognized for his commitment to both social change and transformational leadership in healthcare innovation. Uh, Mr. Tremuto is the founder and chair of the Tremuto Foundation, which advances young people's rights to education, healthcare access, and combats human rights violations. Uh, his three-decade commitment to social change and innovation has earned the numerous awards, including both uh, the extremely prestigious Robert F. Kennedy Ripple of Hope Award and the RFK Embracing His Legacy Awards. He currently serves as a member of, uh, of Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, chairman of this leadership council, uh, and he's also a passionate champion of various cutting-edge approaches to uh, not just healthcare access and drug safety, but addressing uh, an important topic we talked a lot about on the show, the social determinants of health. Uh, Mr. Tremuto has a long history of bringing together social commitment with this healthcare innovation, served his role as the CEO of Tibidi Health, as founder uh, of Physicians Interactive Holdings, and ultimately launched in 2011, Health E-Villages, which is a non-profit organization uh, providing state-of-the-art mobile health technologies and challenging clinical environments around the globe. Uh, Mr. Trudeau is a member of uh, Brown University Healthcare Leadership Board, as well as a member of the advisory board of Boston University School of Public Health, uh, and holds honorary doctorates from University of Massachusetts Lowell, Thomas Jefferson University here in Philly, LaSalle College, and St. Joseph's College, and, and is an accomplished author of two books, including Life's uh, Bulldozer Moments, How Adversity Leads to Success in Life and Business, and his current book, which is going to be released April of this year, The Double Bottom Line, uh, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. A lot to talk about. We're honored to have him. Uh, Donato Tremuto, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that uh, introduction. It's beginning to sound more and more like an obituary, but um, <laughs> uh, we're, we're happy um, to be here today. Far from it, but it's re I really appreciate your time today. And, you know, um, I was saying offline, I I'm going to start the show off today actually by stealing from you, um, stealing a question, which, you know, I I've listened to past presentations of yours. Um, basically, tell me about your why, or in your case, why's, uh, why social determinants of health, why public health, and ultimately why the Tremuto Foundation? Well, great question, and uh, I appreciate that question because it's always the first question that I will ask of anyone uh, who I meet for the first time. You know, I think that you can't describe your why just in, you know, one, uh, one answer. I think for me, there's two 
uh, two wives, my personal and my uh, my professional. I think my professional why was stemmed from the loss of my hearing at age eight. Uh, I was eight years old when I lost my hearing and for nearly a decade, I had little uh, to no hearing. And so during those uh, 10 years, I experienced the most profound sense of loneliness. Uh, as we know today, the uh, loss of hearing is one of the key contributors to feeling isolated and to feeling lonely. And I still feel that because hearing aids don't do uh, 100% what your natural senses uh, are able to do. But during those 10 years when I lost my hearing, I made a commitment to myself that if I ever had my hearing restored um, to the point that I could um, uh, perform in professional uh, duties, that I would devote myself to healthcare. And uh, I had a second tragedy that happened during that time. My speech pathologist uh, was my sister-in-law. And uh, three months after the last surgery that I had in 1972, uh, she died in childbirth. She was given uh, a medication that she was allergic to, and she died delivering her second child. And so I devoted my life not only to the social determinants of health, but also to creating a safer uh, environment for how information gets disseminated. My personal why, and to your question about the foundation and why I've devoted the last two decades to philanthropy, was um, unfortunately uh, related to another uh, unfortunate event, uh, September 11, 2001. I was scheduled to be on the second plane that hit the South Tower. Um, however, the night before, I had a toothache, and I decided that I would leave the night before because I needed to see my dentist, and I was speaking at a healthcare conference, and I was not going to speak with a toothache. I changed my plans, but my two friends and their three-year-old son, who had been staying uh, at my summer home in Maine, uh, unfortunately got on the plane, and they lost their lives when the second plane uh, hit the South Tower on September 11, 2001. And I write about this in my first book, but I decided rather than have hatred and anger in my heart, that I would channel um, the loss and the grief in doing something good. And so my partner and I launched, uh, which is now, uh, we just changed the name a few months ago to the Tremuto Porter Foundation. Okay. Uh, my partner has been a very significant part of the foundation. But what we've done over the last uh, two decades is to identify young children who, like myself, have had some challenge in their life. It doesn't have to be a medical challenge. I had a medical challenge, but there are a lot of young kids that have challenges with respect to financial. They have challenges with respect to being bullying. And we've now have helped nearly 75 young students go to college. And it's not just the tuition assistance. We mentor these young um, adults. And, you know, as I always say, we don't create who they are. They create who they are. We just provide the necessary tools to get there. And in addition to the 75 students, we've helped more than 50 organizations. Uh, and so my professional uh, why I describe, but my personal why uh, has been to uh, make the world a tad better um, than when I arrived. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate your sharing those stories too, Donata, because they're, they're, they're so very in, important in, in sort of the big picture of what you, you've created and what you're creating. Um, you know, 
in the book that's you know scheduled to come out shortly, the double bottom line. Um, you know, this book, you're going to be exploring uh, the importance of compassion um, as uh, a force in business uh, in, in terms of advancing the well-being of not just the company, but of course, its people. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I, I uh, Last year, I got to spend a little time with uh, Dr. Dupton Jimpa, the uh, Dalai Lama's uh, translator. He uh, you know, heads this uh, Compassion Institute. And I read him this general uh, definition. I pulled it out of the dictionary. Uh, Defining compassion as a, a sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others, uh, involving allowing ourselves to both be moved by their suffering and experience motivation to ultimately help prevent and alleviate it. Uh, he had said that wasn't enough. He brought in this factor of joy that uh, as a result of helping to alleviate and prevent suffering, we both on both ends experience joy in our lives with the suffer and one helps alleviate it. Talk a little bit about what your definition and thoughts of compassion are. Well, it's a very, very great question. I'm so happy you asked it because the real essence of the book was our uh, having uh, done two uh, um, research. The first was a cohort of 40 world leaders to whom we interviewed this very question. What does compassionate leadership mean to you? But then we did something else. We went out and we surveyed 1,500 uh, workers throughout the United States to find out uh, what the compassionate leadership um, um, style uh, meant to them. What we found in both of those studies is that compassion is not just about being kind. It's not just about, you know, showing empathy. What compassionate leadership is, is empathy in action. So let me give an example. I could walk down the street and say, gosh, I feel sorry for that person uh, who needs food. And then I just move on. Well, I have now displayed empathy. But true compassionate leadership is taking that empathy and converting it into doing something good, doing something about it. And that was the common denominator of the 40 plus leaders to whom we interviewed is across the board. They gave examples of issues and challenges that they had seen in the workplace or they had seen in their community and they did something about it. And so for me, that was a real wake up call that you know a lot of people will say to me, yeah, I'm kind, I'm nice. It's just not enough uh, if you're going to move the needle toward a more compassionate and kinder uh, world. And you know, I, I've not had a chance to, to look at the book, as I mentioned, it's coming out, but I did get to, you know, I did a little research uh, and a bunch of the names that are going to be represented in the book that you did your research with. And I thought we could just touch on a couple of them because you know, we, some of these themes overlap stuff that we've touched on on the show. And one of the, the more fascinating ones that stood out was um, uh, this young gentleman named Jordan Mittler, uh, only 17 years old, founds his own company that is specifically focused on educating seniors. Uh, and this is such a, you know, we, we touched on this topic uh, of intergenerationality, uh, the importance of the young learning from the elders, the elders benefiting from being around the young. Um, talk a little bit about what you learned from Jordan Mittler, if you would. Well, um, several things I learned from Jordan. Number one is he really did define the definition of compassionate leadership. Uh, his grandmother, um, or maybe his grandfather, but one of his grandparents uh, had a difficult uh, time with 
get it onto social media. And so he went over and he spent the time to help them learn uh, how to turn the device on and you know how to access social media. And then he realized that this is happening to my grandparents. This must be happening to lots of other seniors. And to his credit, he launched the, um, uh, the organization that now educates seniors. Very interesting. So um, it is a small world when you think about it. In 2018, I did an op-ed and uh, in that op-ed, I, um, I wrote about the importance during the holidays to raise the question of loneliness at the kitchen table. And Jordan ended up writing to me and his mother said to him, there's no way that a CEO of a public company is going to write to you and <laughs> onto your email. Well, they didn't know me. And so when I received his letter, I immediately wrote back during the holidays invited him. I was going to um, um, uh, be um, involved in NASDAQ for the opening bell in January of 20, um, uh, 2019. And I invited him. And together, we started to talk about what we could do in terms of collaborating. There's a new word that I introduced in the book, and it's called collaboration. Yeah. And what I mean by that is the more you're willing Regardless of somebody's age, and to your point, Jordan is 17 years old. So what? He developed an innovative idea. I am 65, merging those ideas created a real movement around how he could scale his business. And so compassionate leadership is also the willingness to accept across all spectrums of the age band yep. ideas and thoughts and to really be able to collaborate with that individual. And so Jordan, hands down, speaks to so many of the key nuggets that we uh, identified in our survey about collaborating, about recognizing that even a 15-year-old uh, individual could have as much uh, thrust and power in terms of innovation and collaboration. It shouldn't make a difference uh, how old someone is. What we should really look at is the difference of committing ourselves to working with one another in a way that can address some of these problems that we're facing in the world. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so now to say a couple of words, if you had another uh, one that's, well, actually two in this case, is the, the husband-wife team of both Bruce and Janine Broussard. On one hand, you have the chief executive officer of Humana, one of the largest health insurance groups in the country, very focused also on the social determinants of health. Um, and now his wife, Janine, she is focused on a, a different aspect of the social determinants with her HUG reading program. Um, two very different approaches, but sort of getting to the same place. Talk a little bit about this husband-wife combo, if you would. Well, you really have to know the two of them because, you know, I've known Bruce for many, many years because of our association uh, in health. And then on the other side, you have this very thoughtful individual in Janine uh, who shares the common denominator that Bruce brings to the table, and that is people first. I think what she's doing with young children, um, Janine, through her experience in the community, has really recognized that if somebody can learn to read, uh, especially in the pockets where you have an individual uh, who doesn't have the financial capacity or may not have access to the same educational tools that you and I have. Yet if you could teach them to read, it's been proven that you can keep them out of the prisons. You can give them opportunities that they normally would not have. Uh, 
And so my point is that Bruce, this very compassionate executive who's done extraordinarily well at Humana, he's been able to deliver and, 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 and provide shareholder value, but it doesn't stop there just with Bruce, is that it's extended across his whole family. And so that's why I'm glad you, you really pointed out the husband and wife, because there was a little subtle message that I wanted to convey is that compassion, normally you'll find it does not just exist with one member uh, of the relationship that's been formed. That what you'll find, it's just like my partner and I, is that we both have been involved in the charitable work. It's not just been Donato. He's immersed into the very initiatives that I strongly believe in. He identifies issues in the community and he'll bring it to the foundation board. And so there was a subtle message to those who read the book that um, most compassionate leaders are not isolated. They're not doing this in a vacuum. They have support systems in their families who quite frankly will embrace the same ideas and the same values that that individual. Now, Bruce has obviously a bigger platform because he's running uh, a major, you know, fortune 100 company, sure. um, but it doesn't really matter yeah. what degree of platform you have. And by the way, there's a, uh, this is my own quote, and I, I came up with it many, many years ago because I had so many people say, well, you know what, you have the means to do what you're doing. And I, I once just looked at myself in the mirror and said, that's not true. When I had no resources, I still was giving back. And so I came up with the following quote, it makes no difference how much you give. What makes the difference is you gave. It makes no difference how much you do. What makes the difference is you did something. Mm -hmm. Very elegant quote and, 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 ex and extremely meaningful. But I appreciate sharing that. Uh, I look forward, I, I very much look forward to the book uh, coming out so we can learn more about uh, the, these fascinating people that you've spoken to. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, we, we've talked a little about social determinants of health and we normally think of sort of the uh, things like nutrition and fitness and so forth, but we, we, we tend to overlook not in recent years, of course, this, the importance of social connection. You mentioned loneliness uh, as a child uh, in your own uh, story. Um, talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, from your, obviously your experience in the past with Tivity, but some of what you're doing now in just terms of isolation. We hear these figures that social isolation during COVID is like milking multiple packs of cigarettes. Uh, and then once you talk about, you know, simple things we could be doing, a touch, a hug, uh, I use the quote, warm human tradition of souls coming together. Uh, talk a little bit about this, if you would. Absolutely. And, you know, the, you mentioned the Dalai Lama and he once said, and I think it's a great, um, a great understanding of how you reach these areas where you embrace um, the notion of doing something. But he once said, in order to understand the pain of somebody else, you yourself have to experience that pain. And so when I was the CEO of Tivity Health, uh, before that it was Healthways, and I was running the Silver Sneakers program, which as you know, is a program that provides physical fitness to millions and millions of seniors. Yep. One of the first things that I did is I went out and I visited with seniors. I went to the actual classes and what I learned is that the seniors who were participating in the Silver Sneakers program were not participating because they wanted to bench press 150 pounds. <laughs> they were there because 
they met new friends. They became connected uh, to other people that they normally would not have uh, had a connection with. And so the light bulb went off that, wait a second, there is a significant sense of isolation. And it's, it's obvious when you turn 65 and you retire, you think you're going to have this enormous network of people. Well, you just lost your first network and that's your, your yeah. fellow uh, associates. And then you move into a community and your friends start to pass away and you lose that. And then the children have to take the car keys away from you. And before you know it, you've lost the ability to go out and meet people. And so this sense of loneliness and isolation was picked up by me back in 2014. And uh, it wasn't really at that time one, you know, um, you know, there wasn't one uh, aspect of uh, recognizing how severe it was only in 2016 and 17 when it started to escalate that this is a very significant issue. Yet the approach to resolving it doesn't require a, a lot of, you know, innovative tools. For example, I wouldn't propose that you ask somebody if they're lonely because there is a certain stigma. Mm -hmm. There is a certain uh, sense that I don't want to admit that I'm lonely. But you can ask questions like, um, um, did you have a good weekend with, you know, you know your family or friends? And mm -hmm. time, if people are experiencing isolation, they'll come back and say, uh, no, I was all by myself. And so you want to be able to ask the question in a way where somebody can feel comfortable in revealing what might have been their um, activity for the last week. The other is that what we have had, we've had a decline in listening to the stories of other people. And that has been in many respects, one of the chief contributors to why people feel isolated. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times what I will do is not only ask about your why, I will ask you to share your story. And it's interesting, it's almost like the light bulb, you know, shines when you ask somebody, tell me about your story, especially somebody who is 70 years old, who might not have had an opportunity to share their life's experience. And so we've got to get back to not simply using technology mm -hmm. as a solution, because what we've been thinking is that the, you know, iPhones or our devices have really solved the problem with the loneliness. No, it's created a problem because people are not looking eyeball to eyeball. They're not associating themselves to asking stories from the other person. And so the last seven years, I have been one of the key catalysts in promoting, uh, and by the way, much of what I'm doing is just raising the awareness of what we can do and how we can open up, if you will, the sense of relevancy in one's life. Because what's happened is people's sense of relevancy, unfortunately, declines. And it declines once you leave your work environment. If you haven't found anything to replace your job and your professional responsibilities, you then begin to fall into this, you know, you know significant state of losing your sense of relevancy. Speaking of technology, um, talk a little bit, if you would, about um, 
I mean, I, this is probably of, of all your projects, uh, the, the most compassionate of them all on a, on a scale, but Healthy Villages founded in 2011, you, you, you saw that a billion people go into their graves, uh, no access to healthcare workers, medication, clean water, affordable healthcare facilities. It's 2011. Um, talk about the idea behind the state-of-the-art mobile health technology uh, addressing these uh, significant gaps uh, in what's happening in, in the rest of the world, the part that most of us don't see. Well, it's a very, you know, and again, it's another, you know, it's funny when you raised this, I paused for a second and said, you know, a lot of times I will, I will kind of do a check and balance on whether or not I am practicing compassionate leadership. And as you were speaking, uh, you're absolutely correct. There's a great example that I was on a plane reading this article that in our lifetime, one billion people will go to their graves prematurely because they did not have access to a healthcare uh, worker. Now, I could have just walked away and said, hey, you know, that's not my problem. And by the way, a lot of people said that to me. It's not my problem. We got enough problems, you know, you know, here in the United States. But that's not the way a compassionate leader works. I basically said to myself, this is terrible that because of your zip code, you don't have the same access that you and I have here in, you know, the first world. And so I realized that there was no way that I was going to be a, going to be able to educate enough physicians to resolve this problem. Case in point, in India, a population of 1.3 billion people, they have the same number of physicians in India that we have in the United States for you know one fourth the population. Right. And so the answer wasn't educate more physicians. And so the idea um, hit me that in the company that I had founded, Physicians Interactive, we had a technology. Uh, a mobile device that could be deployed in these emerging countries and that the devices could help physicians to treat thousands of individuals uh, that normally would require many, 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 many physicians and healthcare workers. And I'm very pleased to share with you the results in a small village uh, in East Africa, Lawala. In 2011, 100 babies per 1,000 live births died. As a result of their program and the Healthy Villages technology, we have reduced that number to 20. 80 more babies per 1,000 live births are now alive because of Healthy Villages and the Lawala Community Health Alliance. And so technology in that case works. We empowered the local villagers with these devices. It was kind of funny when we first gave them the devices with the medical content. They didn't know how to turn the device on. Well, we taught them how to do it. Just because you are poor doesn't mean you don't have the intellectual capacity to do the things that you and I do. And so that is one um, example um, in the last 10 years that I am so proud of, that we were able to really move the needle. And by the way, once we addressed infant mortality, we were finding that the children from two days old to five years old were dying. And so we developed a pediatric program and now we have reduced pediatric mortality. So technology is critical. Yep. Um, it's not the only answer, but if you look at the word collaboration, we need innovation like technology, but we need the human hands to collaborate as well. Absolutely. 
Donato, it's it's a uh, it's such an impressive uh, portfolio of, of what you've been doing and what you're up to. Um, I, I really uh, cheering you on from the sidelines uh, here in Philadelphia, but watching uh, from a distance and uh, just you know. You know, I just I encourage everybody. We're going to put the links to to uh, to all of these initiatives in the bio of the show. But really, I said wishing you the best with all this as, as we move forward in 2022. Um, for everybody that's going to be uh, listening to this particular show uh, on the podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel, uh, you've been listening to Donato Chamudo, uh, founder of the Chamudo Foundation, founder of Health E-Villages. Uh, definitely pick up the copy of the book, which uh, should be out shortly, uh, Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. Um, Tonight, it's uh, really fascinating listening to your whys, uh, your story, and, and, and everything you've accomplished and, and continue to accomplish. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. Uh, I know it's late there in the evening in Italy um, to come on the show. Obviously, thank you for everything you, you're doing and continue to do. And as we say on this show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow uh, through what you've been doing. It's, it's really so impressive. Well, thank you. But, you know, I would be uh, violating my, um, you, know, you know, question I asked. Your why? What is your why? Three beautiful children and a beautiful wife. And I want to I want to be there here for them. And I want them to be here a long time. And um, that's all. It, it, it sums it all up. If, I, if, I, if they were here, I'd bring them on the show right now. And I'd show you my why. Great answer. Now, I see a picture behind you. Is that? Um... Those are my daughters. And okay. I, I have to point those out. That Yes, I. Uh, yeah, she, she, she mandates that they are part of my show. So. Well, you know, in the few minutes that I've had with you, I can tell that you have a very compassionate um, heart. And uh, if you would have given me a different answer than that, I would have been somewhat surprised. So yeah. the children are important uh, in terms of our future. And, uh, you know, I'll leave you with this. And I've said this so many times to people that I have met uh, in the promotion of the book. I really think our children uh, need... Uh, to really see that compassion and kindness coming from their parents, coming yep. from their families. We owe it to our children. Absolutely. To that they inherit uh, a kinder and compassionate uh, world. We can disagree. We should disagree. That would, you know, allows for healthy innovation. That said, we need to disagree in a way that uh, shows respect and kindness to the person uh, who might have a different opinion than what we have. Yep, absolutely. Great Thank seeing you, Carl. Make great it a great uh, make it a great day. You too.